Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com. You guys know that, that I love shoes. I don't know if you got to see Casey up here in those Jordan 3s, but I felt very threatened right now that he had the best shoes on Sunday. So uh, I'm going to have to ask for something for Christmas, I guess. But uh, hey, uh, many of you know, uh, from time to time, I get asked to uh, officiate weddings. It's just something that goes uh, with the job, something that you end up doing uh, as, a, as a pastor. And, and uh, I, I get a chance to uh, do maybe like one a month, I would say on average, a wedding. And uh, sometimes I'll get feedback. People will say things uh, like, Mark, that was the greatest wedding I've ever heard in my life. Or Mark, you're the greatest orator in the history of time. Thank you for blessing me. No, I'm joking. People don't say stuff like that. But um, I like to think that I, I, the weddings that I, I can be a part of are, are not terrible, right? I like to think that uh, they're at least tolerable, that most people can leave those and think like, oh, that was great, you know? And so sometimes uh, you'll do a wedding and you'll get to the... Uh, the, the part after you're kind of be at the reception, someone will come up to you and say, hey, you made me think of something in the, the life of my parents. Or you made me think of, of my grandparents. You, you, you kind of refocus me on my marriage. And so it's always fun to, to meet people. And I had a chance to do a, a wedding this summer. And um, sometimes I can't meet every person. Sometimes you see people across the room and you think they're like talking about you. And you're like, I hope they didn't say that the wedding was awful, but you never really know. And so uh, this, this past summer, like I said, I did a wedding and there was a, a story that was relayed to me later. And so I wanted to uh, share it with you today. There were uh, two girls that were talking and uh, the one girl looked up and she saw my wife across the room. And uh, maybe some of you don't know my wife. She's back serving in Movement Kids today. So I, I brought a picture just so we could show this. And honestly, just so that I could look at a picture of my wife and pat myself on the back. Okay. So anyway, that's my wife, Kristen. Uh, I think she's pretty attractive. So anyway, so there were, there were two girls and uh, they were talking and the one looked up and she said, oh, see that girl right there kind of across this venue. She said, uh, that's, that's the pastor's wife. And, um, you know, like I said, th- both of these girls had just heard me do something that I like to think I do it for a living, so it shouldn't be awful. And, and yet the one girl, when, when faced with this, oh, that's the pastor's wife right there, she immediately replied, no, there's no way. She's really pretty, <laughs> right? And, and so this, this, my friend heard this story and was like, I can't wait to tell this to Mark and rushed over and was like, see those two girls right there? You're not gonna believe what was just said. Uh, and, and it probably sounds like some made up pastor story, um, but I think it supports what I've been saying all along that I, I married out of my league, right? And so when you hear me say that, you probably think like, oh, that's just like a dad joke, pastor joke. And it's like, no, these are real life examples. I married out of my league, right? Um, and, and, and sometimes uh, people, people are like, well, how does that, how does that happen exactly? I want to tell you my, my secret today, right? Here's the secret. Um, Kristen has a wonderful relationship with her dad. And so I have a theory uh, that, that when people have a good relationship with their parents, they might not want to admit it because they grow up thinking their parents aren't cool in some way. But I think that people are, are kind of looking for some of the characteristics that they see in their parents in their spouse. And so let me tell you about Kristen's dad. Kristen's dad is a guy who loves to tell corny jokes, right? He, uh, he, he, he loves to serve in his local church. He's involved in leadership and he also happens to have a beard, right? So I met Kristen and I saw the things that she was looking for in a man and I just kind of swooped in and thought, this is my chance to capitalize and marry out of my league, right? And so I, I, I swooped in and, and, and tricked her into marrying me quickly and that's how you leverage what you have. And so that's our, our topic for this morning. Uh, if you've been taking notes on how to marry out of your league, that wasn't the intent of this message, but you can go ahead and write that one down. That one's on the house. But what we actually want 
wanna talk about is how you can leverage all of who you are, right? That's, that's sometimes what you have to do to, to close the deal, to trick someone into marrying you, or sometimes it's what you have to do just in life in general because you are not just your looks, right? Thank goodness that I am not just my looks or it'd be a rough life, right? You are also the totality of who you are. You are, you are your, your skills, you are your talents, you are your gifts, you are your friendships, you are your family, you are your career, you are your character, you are your personality, and you are all of those things. And as a Christ follower, we are called to leverage all of who we are in the name of Jesus so that people can know God, right? And sometimes we don't understand that, but I want you to to know something this morning that if you've given your life to Jesus, if you would describe yourself as a Christian, you are called to live a mission with your life. And the mission that you're on is the Jesus mission. And we say things like that often. We we describe things like that. And sometimes I think that can be confusing. And so I wanna just highlight this today. This is what I mean when I say the Jesus mission. Our job as Christ followers is to reach people who are far from God, Our job is restoring God's dream for the world, right? That all people would know him and be in relationship with him. And our job is reproducing the mission in others. And so as we step back today, as we're still in this series called Blurred Vision, we want to go into a place of of dialing down more and more into our vision. A couple of weeks ago, we said that our our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. And that's not a one-time decision or a one-time occurrence. That's a a, a daily decision, an often decision where we say, Lord, where do you have me? And how can I surrender more of myself to be like you? How can I take steps toward you today? How can I take steps toward you today? And we said that sometimes we can take our eyes off the the prize. Sometimes we're distracted by the scenery and we forget that we're supposed to be sacrificially walking toward Jesus. Last week, Trig took us to a place where we looked at who we are as God's people, what our identity is and how we can live out that identity. And we said that it's impossible to live out our identity without community. And so we talked about what it looks like to be a family and even specifically to be in groups. And so today we want to talk about what does it look like to live out the mission of Jesus with all that we are? With, with who we are and with all that we are, what does it look like to leverage the mission of Jesus in our lives? And so to do that, I wanna invite us to turn to Genesis chapter 12 today. We're gonna be in Genesis chapter 12. It's on page 10. So if you've got a Bible that's under your seat, behind your seat, around your seat, you'll see one there on the floor. You can feel free to open that up or follow along on a device, but we're gonna be in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis is the first book in the Bible, the first book in the Old Testament. And we wanna start here with some foundational things in the life of a man named Abraham. Abraham, this is a story that we want to revisit and we want to revisit exactly what it looks like because this guy is called the father of faith. He's the beginning of the nation of Israel. He's kind of the the first in the line of the the Jewish people who the Old Testament is about. And so we want to look at this promise that was given to him and talk about what this looks like as we look to, to live our lives in relationship with God and leverage them in the same way that he did. And so Genesis chapter 12 Verse one, page 10, you can read along, follow along. We'll see what God has for us today. It says this, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. Verse three, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. 
Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran and headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Morah. At that time, the area was inhabited by the Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abram has a a relationship with God. God has promised him, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your people. They have a covenant relationship. They're in regular communication. And so he's walking, he's taking steps with God. We say that we have a similar relationship with God if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus. And sometimes for us, that's metaphorical. For Abram, it was very, very literal. He was on a journey as he followed God. God was blessing his family and growing his family and moving his family as they took steps to follow him and and go where he he wanted to take them. And so we see that, that Abram is listening to God and, and walking with God. And, and this relationship is not based on the fact that, oh, Abram has to do this or be perfect. We're going to find out, and maybe some of you already know, this, this man is not perfect, but this is a, a, a relationship and a covenant that God has said, no matter what happens, no matter what you do, I am for you, I love you, and I'm going to be here for you and your family. And God has decided to bless him. And so that's what we see in verse 12. That's the, I'm sorry, chapter 12. That's the foundation of what's taking place. In chapter 13, Abram and, and Lot, his nephew, their families continue to grow and, and they have uh, large entourages. And sometimes those entourages don't get along. They've got family and employees and animals. And so uh, Abram says, hey, look at all the land that we can see. Where do you want to send your people? Maybe we can spread out here a little bit because we don't want people to, to fight. And Lot says, uh, the land over there looks really good. I'm going I'm to go over there. And it's by these towns maybe you've heard of called Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and so Lot takes his family over there and Abram takes the, the, the rest of the land and, and they kind of spread out. And in this chapter, we see that uh, maybe Lot picked the wrong land. In fact, how I would define the wrong land is exactly what happens. His family is eventually, eventually kidnapped by some, some people who are coming in to invade. And so Lot and his, his family are taken and Abram has to put together an army and go and rescue them and bring them out. And, and so a lot of things are happening. A lot of things are taking place. But God appears in, in, in chapter 15 and he reminds them of what he's already put in motion. He says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm going to bless you. You can trust me. Your people are my people and we're on this journey together. But Abraham, he, uh, he struggles to, to trust this. God has said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your people. I'm going to bless your family. And Abram's getting up there in age and he says, but I don't even have a, a, a kid. And so he, he takes matters into his own hands and he, he conceives a child with one of his servants. And, and then God has to appear again and remind him and, and say, I'm with you. I'm for you. You can trust me. You don't have to try and take control of things in your own timing. I'm in control here and I have a covenant with you And so God appears to uh, Abram and Sarai and he changes their names to remind him of this covenant. And that's when we start to call him Abraham and call Sarai, Sarah. And God continues to bless them and clarify what he is doing. And even in chapter 18, God sends some visitors to visit Abraham and tell him, hey, I've told you I'm gonna bless your family. I've told you about this timeline. I've told you about this plan. 
And he says, it's now time. In the next year, you're going to have a son. And so I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah just think like, finally, God, finally, you've done this. Well, here's what happens in verse 10 as these messengers from God talk to Abraham. It says this in verse 10, Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, how could a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. I'm glad that we have biblical examples like this of people who doubt God so that we can just know that, that we don't struggle with that, but we can laugh at them, right? And they, they really struggle to trust God and trust his plan and listen to him and believe his promises. And we never have that problem, so we can just laugh at Abraham and Sarah, Right? No, we, we doubt God's promises all the time. We doubt God's presence and his faithfulness all the time. And we doubt that he is who he says he is. And we doubt that he will do what he has said that he will do. And so we can learn from their example. We can learn from them not trusting God and, and doubting God, but we see that God has been faithful. He has made this promise. And when they've messed up, he's reminded them of this promise. And when they've doubted God and tried to take matters into their own hands, he's reminded them of this process. And when things haven't worked out, he's reminded them of this process. And he said, I, I love you. I'm for you. You're my people and, and I'm your God. And so God reiterates and affirms this promise in relationship. And this promise is not just for a son. This is not just a, a one-time occurrence, right? This is part of the greater promise that, that God is going to give them a family line who will bless all nations. God is saying, I'm going to work in you to bless all nations. And so this means that Abraham's family is the beacon. They're the light that people will be looking to, to see God. They're the priesthood. They're the intercessors. They're the ones who are going to be inviting the world and inviting the nations into relationship with God. That is how God is going to use this family and these people. And that's the purpose for them to have a son. And that's probably a, a lot to handle, right? Maybe we could say that Abraham kind of struggled to understand that or completely own that or live in that and, and fathom what was going on. But we see this down in verse 20. We see the story begin to unfold as Abraham has to wonder, what does this mean for me and my function and my mission? It says this, so the Lord told Abraham, I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. So these other men that were there, it says they turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Abraham is asking in this moment, hey, these are people I know. These are towns I know. This is where my nephew and his family have been. And, and suddenly God's saying, things aren't good over there. These, these people aren't good. And I, I think I'm gonna remove this town and make it disappear and erase it. And Abraham's thinking, wait, I know these people. Are you gonna, are you gonna take them all? And so Abraham asks God, verse 24, he says this, suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. 
Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again, since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. Please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Then Abraham said, since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way and Abraham returned to his tent. It's kind of a a weird interaction there because Abraham is, is going before God who he has this covenant relationship with. And he, he knows that, that God is, is calling into question this town where there's some people that he cares about and he's known. And so Abraham is kind of leveraging what he has. And he says, God, please don't, please don't take them. What if there are 50 people? God says, all right, if there's 50. And he says, all right, Abraham's probably thinking, I know there's not actually 50. I know that town. What if there are 40? Okay, I'll, I'll spare them. What if there are 30 and there seems to be this, this buildup and this progression and this countdown, right? It's like if you're watching football and you're like, he could go all the way, the 40, the 30, the 20, the 10. Oh, it's lunchtime. Let's lay the ball down and go to lunch, right? We seem to just kind of have this cliffhanger where, where he seems to be calling to God and saying, Lord, will you spare this town? Will you spare this city? And Abraham's saying, I, I see wickedness in the city. I see problems. I see people that are, are, are doing things that don't honor God. And, and Abraham is saying, what, what can I do? What can I do about this? And he leverages what he has in that moment in this situation. And that's his voice. And that's his relationship with Yahweh, the living God. And so he goes before God and he says, Lord, will you spare these people? Will you change history? Will you change your plan? Will you spare these people? Because I'm pleading with you. I love them. Will you spare these people? God relents and and God says, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so Abraham has used his voice to intercede on behalf of people who are far from God. He said, Lord, will you spare them? Lord, will you save them? Lord, if they don't hear you, or will you just help them to acknowledge you? And yet he he doesn't go far enough. It seems like just when he's getting to the point that he says, God, will you save these people? He just kind of stops and and stops asking. And it it looks from everything that we have that, that Abraham gave up too soon. He seems to to grow tired or feel like he's asking for too much and he doesn't want to push on and he doesn't want to intercede anymore and he doesn't want to leverage this relationship and continue to make requests. And so he just just stops, stops short of the goal line. I want to ask you this question this morning. What have you been given that you can leverage for God? What have you been given that you can leverage so that people can know God? We've already said that, that your, your only ability is not just to speak, but you can leverage all of the things that God has given you. And God has given us all so much. 
We like to think that we're only middle class or we only have a certain amount of money. And yet there are people around the world right now gathering who would say, man, I wish I had 1% of what those people have. They would look at America and say that we're blessed and, and we need to recognize that we're blessed. And so I ask, what do you have that you can leverage for God? It probably starts with your skills and your talents and your abilities. And I'm sure it continues through your friends and your family and your network and your career and your possessions. We've been blessed and given many things that we can leverage in the name of God. We should be willing to leverage those things so that that people can know God. But but sometimes we we take those things for granted, right? Let's, Let's pretend that if right now we could eliminate all of our possessions. If you walked out of here and you had no friends, if you had no family, you had no possessions, you had no money, no cars, no career, no nothing. I think we have to be honest that you would still have one incredible thing that you can leverage. On top of all the other stuff we've talked about that we can leverage, you have access to an almighty God. You have a relationship with God. You can go before God. You can beg and plead with God and you can take requests before God and he hears us and he answers prayer. And so even if you had nothing else, you have access to God the Father. You are speaking to your heavenly Father and you can go before him and you can ask him to deliver people and to change situations and to change history. You can take those requests before him. How do we have access to God the Father, you would ask? Well, it's not because we're perfect. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we've never messed up. In fact, scripture says that we have sin nature that we're we're born into and in some way we all choose our own way. We all choose to go away from God's plan and God's path and think that we know a better way and we're smarter. And and when we do that, we separate ourselves from an almighty, perfect God. We drive a wedge in our relationship with him and we separate ourselves with sin. And yet the Bible tells us that God didn't want us to be separated from him. He didn't want our sin to keep us from him. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus was fully God and, and fully man. And he came to this world and he lived a perfect life so that when he was accused of wrongdoing, so that when he was put on the cross, he was going to the cross to pay the price for our sin. He was going to the cross to sacrifice his life so that that gap, that, that distance between us and God could be closed So that by putting our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus, by recognizing his sacrifice, that it's by nothing we can do, but by his finished and completed work on the cross, we can have a relationship with God. We can walk across that great chasm, that that bridge of the cross, and we can know God and we can be found in God. We can have relationship with God. We can find peace in God and we can take things to God in a covenant relationship and we can pray to him. And so what have you been given that you can leverage for God? At the core, you have access to God the Father. You have access to a relationship with God the Father. And you've been given so much more, even earthly things that you can leverage, that you can go all in, that you can leverage so people can know God and know the gospel. And yet some of us like to think, well, I'll give God a piece of myself. I'll give God some of my career or some of my influence or a little bit of my time thinking that 
that that's how God's economy works. God's economy is, is different. He doesn't say, here's a small chunk of my love. He doesn't say, here's a little bit of my son, Jesus, on the cross. He leveraged all that he had to buy us back. He leveraged all that Jesus had to pay the price for our sins so that we could know him. And we are blessed and honored to respond to to Jesus going all in to say, Jesus, I give you all of myself. There's a story of a man named William Borden who graduated from a Chicago high school in 1904. He was the heir to the family fortune and he was kind of already known as a wealthy guy. His family were millionaires and, and over 100 years ago, that was, a, that was a lot of money. And so for his high school graduation present, his, his parents gave this 16-year-old a trip around the world and they had a, a man go with him to just kind of be his tour guide and talk about life. And, and it wasn't too far into this trip through Asia and the Middle East and Europe that this, this guy, William Borden, felt a growing sense for the world's hurting people. And eventually he wrote home and he told his parents, I feel called to be a missionary to tell people about hope in God. His friends and family weren't necessarily excited about that. And even though they, some of them were believers, they, they started to tell him and write him letters. And this is a quote from one. They said, you're throwing yourself and your life away as a missionary. So as William Borden would spend time with God, it's, the story's passed down that, that at some point in these next couple months, he wrote in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Because people were telling him, well, maybe just give a portion of your life or maybe just some of your time. And he said, no, no, there's, there's no reserves. I don't have a backup tank here. I have one life. Jesus gave his one life for me and I'm going to give my one life for him. No reserves. So after this trip, he started at Yale and he began to find that he had influence and his classmates started to notice that there was something unusual about him as he would lead them in Bible studies and, and lead them in thinking toward the future. And people described him as a solid rock on their campus. And those of you that lived enough life, you know that we can't describe ourselves as solid rocks. And so if someone can call you a solid rock, it's because they're seeing Jesus in you. Warden said that he found his strength and his purpose in a relationship with Jesus. And so during the rest of his college years, he continued to journal and define what what exactly God was calling him to. And there was a time that he wrote that he, for the rest of his life, wanted to say no to self and yes to Jesus every time that he was faced with that decision. Eventually, he felt a call to go minister in China and be a missionary in China. And once he had his eyes on that goal, he never wavered from that goal. And he would challenge those around him to similar goals. And one of them said that he was the strongest person on their campus and they could tell there was something different about him. Upon graduation, William Borden turned down some high profile jobs and some incredible jobs. People were asking him to do great things because of his connection, because of his education, because of his family. And he said, I'm I'm called to, to be a missionary. And he wrote in the back of his Bible, no retreats. God was calling him forward and calling him forward in obedience. And he was going to leverage what he'd been given. And he wasn't going to look back. He wasn't going to have regrets. He was going to live the one life that God had given him to honor God. 
So he went to do some graduate work at Princeton Seminary. And when he finished his studies, he, he sailed for China, hoping to work with Muslim people. And so he stopped for a while in Egypt so that he could learn Arabic. And while there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, as a 25-year-old, this man passed away. When this news came back to the States, the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. And some quotes were that a wave of sorrow went around the world because this man not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way that was so joyous and natural. He acted like it was a privilege to do. But people were looking at this story and they were thinking, there's nothing about that that's a privilege. He, he compromised the road ahead of him. He, he, he sacrificed all this wealth. He gave up everything he had. His life was a, was a waste, many people would have thought. So was his untimely death a, a waste? Well, not in God's perspective, because as the story has, they were able to ship his things back to the States and his family could go through his journals and go through his Bible and he had written no reserves, no retreats. And sometime in that final part of his life, he wrote these words, no regrets. We have one call upon our lives and that's to respond with all that we are to honor God, to worship God so that people can know God. There's no reason that we should save a piece of ourselves or a piece of our influence or a piece of our network or a piece of our wealth. There's no reason that we would hold back, that we would change our calling or not be excited about living our life for Jesus in the same way that he gave his life for us. And so we don't have to have regrets that we've wasted our life because we can go all in and we can say, Lord, this is all I am and all that I have and I'm giving it all for you. no matter who you are or where you're at today, you can, you can choose to respond and give your life to Jesus. It may be the first time you've made that decision. We would love to talk to you about that. There's a card on your chair there that you can fill out that you want more information about starting a relationship with Jesus and what it looks like to live your life for him because he gave his life for you. Maybe you find yourself in an audience where you would say, you know what, I've I've made that decision before, but I feel like I've been living my life pretty selfishly and living my life for me. And maybe you just needed a reminder that there's no, there's no reserve that you need to hold back today. There's, there's nothing that you need to, to save. You just want to live your life for Jesus with no regrets. I want to ask us to, to close our eyes and, and just pray for a second as we talk to God. I found myself preparing this message this week and I, it's hard to to think about leveraging all that we have for God and not be convicted. And I thought of all of the things that I personally want to hold back, energy and time and relationships. And it's not that we're being selfish. I just tell myself I'm trying to find balance or trying to find personal health. And I realize that those are my excuses for selfishness. And so I want to just ask that as you, as you, as you sit there, maybe just clench your fists and think of all the things that you're holding from God. Think of all the things that you're holding back from God and think of all the ways that we save ourselves and justify selfishness. And I want to ask that you just do something as an act of worship. Can you just open your hands and hold, hold your hands open and release those things before God? 
Maybe just as a physical representation of what God's doing in our minds and our hearts, Lord, we say, Lord, I release my wealth to you. I release my influence to you. I release my relationships and my platform and my time. I release the things that I've selfishly held. God, I want to leverage all that I am and everything that I am, and I want to give it to you. Just hold your hands open and free before God as we've seen our friends do today in dedicating their child to the Lord. We want our kids to be safe and we want them to be successful, but it's more important that we say, God, use my child so that people can know you. Leverage my family so that people can know you. What an incredible example today and something that we can echo with our lives. God, we want to honor you with the things that you've given us. We want to leverage the things that you've given us so that people can know your name, can praise your name. So God, we just ask that you will help us to continually look to you, follow you, be obedient to you, and surrender our lives to you. So God, we ask that you will keep our eyes on you and help us to be obedient in the small things, in the large things. Help us to be faithful, to trust you, and follow you. God, I pray if there's people that are struggling to surrender their life today, Lord, that they will want to know what it's like to rest in you and have a relationship with you and know love and know peace. Lord, if there's someone that's struggling to surrender a small chunk of their life, Lord, I I pray that they will know that your goodness and your faithfulness is so much greater than whatever that earthly thing is in our life that we cling to. God, help us to give that up in the name of knowing you and living for you. It's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen.